Und sie sprachen, wohl auf, lasst uns eine Stadt und einen Turm bauen, das Spitze bis an den anderen Himmelreiche, dass wir uns einen Namen machen. Denn wir werden sonst zerstreut in alle Länder. Da fuhr der Herr hernieder, dass er sähe die Stadt und den Turm, die die Menschenkinder bauten. Und der Herr sprach, siehe, es ist einerlei Volk und einerlei Sprache unter ihnen allen und haben das angefangen zu tun. Sie werden nicht ablassen von allem, was sie sich vorgenommen haben zu tun. As we read this chapter, you'll appreciate um, the different languages we have amongst us. Um, turn with me and we'll read, um, I'll read from verse 1 of chapter 11 and we'll go through to chapter 12, verse 9. It's the word of God where it says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may have a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the account of Shem. Ten years after the flood, when Shem was a hundred years old, he became the father of a faxed. And after he became the father of a faxed, Shem lived five hundred years and had other sons and daughters. When Aphax had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Aphax had lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he had become the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg lived 30 years, he became the father of Reuel. And after he became the father of Reuel, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Reuel had lived 32 years, he became the father of Sarug. And after he had become the father of Sarug, Reuel lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. 
And after he became the father of Nahor, Sarag lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abraham, Nahor and Haran. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abraham and Nahor both both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren and had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great and you will become a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that they had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abraham travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah in Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring... I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. Thanks, Carl. Well, I've, uh, I've been reading in my spare time through Genesis in German, uh, but that was too quick for me. It takes me about uh, 15 minutes to read five verses. But uh, I thought to myself, it's just as well we didn't have Eric up here reading in Afrikaans. That would have, been, uh, would have emptied the church. <laughs> but such uh, is uh, how things go. Well, uh, everybody loves a big tower, don't they? Uh, everybody uh, loves uh, a great big building. When I was young, we used to catch the train into Sydney. We lived in the Blue Mountains and uh, we'd catch the train in to see the Lego exhibitions that would uh, happen in the city there. And they were often in, uh, Centerpoint, uh, in the Centrepoint building or Sydney Tower, whatever you want to call it. They were never at the top. They were uh, in the building underneath. Uh, and I remember as we would go to these Lego exhibitions, they were always conveniently positioned right near the uh, kind of the elevators to the, to the top of the tower. 
And I remember uh, begging my mother every time we went to go up to the top. We never went. Uh, it was far too expensive for us at the time. Uh, and I still haven't been. It's a, sorry, it's a sad tale. But anyway, uh, even when Sydney Tower was built, it wasn't the tallest tower in the, in the world. I think it was the fourth tower when it was built. Uh, I think it was, began construction in the 70s. Uh, it's apparently the same height as the Eiffel Tower, but at 309 metres, it's seriously dwarfed by the latest uh, tallest building in the world, the uh, Burj Khalifa in Dubai, which stands at a whopping 840 metres. Because they always put those big poles on the top to, you know, to get closer to the record. But anyway, all over the world, people are trying to build these ridiculously tall buildings, taller and taller buildings. Every year it seems like there's a new tallest tower and it turns out that it's not a new phenomenon. It turns out actually that years ago, in biblical times, thousands of years ago, people had the same aspiration to build big buildings, tall buildings. Uh, Phil, Phil Dingamats will tell you if you ask him and he might tell you even if you don't ask that buildings are more than just things which are inhabited. Buildings change people. Buildings set an agenda. Buildings are symbols of things. And with tall buildings, that's especially true. Gideon Haig, in his fascinating book on the history of office work, points out that the largest structure ever to be... Yes, you might not believe it, but it is an interesting book. <laughs> but he points out in that the largest structure ever to be destroyed in a catastrophic moment was an office building, the World Trade Centre. Its destruction was not merely an attempt at causing mass casualties, it was a symbolic act. Gideon Haig writes, to them, that is to the terrorists, in its height, its duality and its global pretensions, the World Trade Centre represented America at its most overweening and overabundant. Its destruction was a symbol of the destruction of the West, the destruction of capitalism. So too, the building that replaced it is symbolic. Number one World Trade Centre is uh, 1,776 metres tall, which might mean something to Dan, but it doesn't mean anything to the rest of us. It took me about half an hour to work out what it was symbolic of. It's the year the, de- the Declaration of Independence was signed. <laughs> Buildings mean things. They say something about who we are and about what we hope to be. Different buildings mean different things and the question that we need to ask is what is this building trying to say? The account of the Tower of Babel is not a story about the danger of architecture but a story about the danger of the ideas that buildings can embody. So what ideas did the Tower of Babel embody? Well, the account of uh, chapter 11 picks up some time after Noah and the flood. People are moving east, we're told, and they find a plain to settle down in. It's while they're living on this plain uh, in, Sh- in China that they agree with each other to build a city with a great tower. And there are three reasons that they give for wanting to build this city and tower. They're all there in, uh, in verse 4 of chapter 11. They say to each other, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. 
So first they want to build a city with a tower that touches the heavens. They don't literally think that the tower is going to touch the heavens like some kind of giant man-made Jack and the Beanstalk, but it's an expression. It's like saying that something touched the sky. It's an expression that speaks about the grandiosity of the building, but it's also an expression that hints at something deeper. It speaks of their deep desire, like Adam and Eve, to be God, to replace God. They want to be in the heavens. They want to capture the heavens for themselves. In fact, in verse 5, there's a little hint of that. It says that God came down to see the city and the tower, literally, that the sons of Adam had built. Now, sons of Adam is just another way, really, of saying, uh, you know, children of men or something like that, children of human beings. But it's also just this little reminder, a little glimpse, that these people are the spiritual descendants of Adam and Eve. Just as Adam and Eve themselves set themselves up in the place of God, so the people of Babel were trying to do the same thing. They were trying to be God. So first they wanted to replace God, build a tower that touched the heavens. Second, they wanted to build a city and a tower to make a name for themselves. They wanted to glorify themselves and exalt themselves rather than exalt and glorify God. Well, it's a common desire, isn't it, to be great. I think whatever it is that we do with our lives, we want to be great at it. And we want to be known to be great at it. To be a, 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 to be a great mathematician, maybe that's just me. But whatever it is that we have a desire to do, we want to be great at it. And not just to be great, but to be great in the place of God. You can't help but feel that a lot of uh, modern tower building has that at its heart the desire to be great, to be known, to be known as greater than God. But it's not just building towers, is it? In so many areas of our lives, we try and make a name for ourselves in the hope that our glory might overshadow the glory of God. Not everyone is like that. Not every great work is done for self-glory. George Frederick Handel, uh, the Baroque composer, often at the end of his works would write, Soli Deo Gloria, which means to God be the glory. That is, he was finishing this great work and he was saying, well, well, I've done my best, but this is for the glory of God. I'm yet to find a CD (laughs) in the CD shop that says the same thing. And so often we do the things that God has given us to do and we forget to add that tag at the end which underlines everything that we do to the glory of God. No, we set out to make a name for ourselves, like the builders of the Tower of Babel. Third, these people want to protect themselves. Their fear is that they will be scattered over the face of the earth. That fear might be a social fear. That is, they might think that by creating this great city, they'll hold their society together, kind of like the glue which holds the fabric of society together. Or, I suspect more likely, the fear is strategic. That is, they're living on a plane. Planes are dangerous places to live in the ancient world. It was much safer to live in the mountains. 
And so it's more likely, I think, that they're, that they're living on this plane and they're thinking to themselves, we need to build a city with this great tower so that we can defend ourselves. So that we can defend ourselves from those who might want to attack us. And they think that they can do that, they can create that safety all without God. They want to build a great world and they want to build a safe world and they want to do that all in a world without God. The futility of those hopes is demonstrated when God undoes all that they're trying to achieve. They tried to keep themselves from being scattered and that's exactly what God does to them. He scatters them over the, uh, over the face of the earth. They tried to build this single great society, but God confuses them. But not simply to teach them a lesson, but it seems God does it so that, because he was worried that they might actually succeed. When God sees what the people are trying to do, his observation is, if they do this, nothing will be impossible for them. The danger is, you see, I think that they might succeed in constructing a world without God. And the problem is that a world without God is not a greater place, it's not a safer place, it's a more dangerous place. The history of the world after Adam and Eve shows that. It started the moment that Adam and Eve tried to replace God and it descended from there. The very next chapter, Cain and Abel, their sons, got into a fight. Cain kills Abel. And, before the, and in the time of Noah, we were told that the, the thought of people's hearts was evil all the time. The end result of trying to construct a world without God is violence and fear and misery. And so God confuses their language and scatters the people over the face of the earth. It is, in fact, an act of compassion, not just an act of judgment. It keeps people from destroying themselves. It's also a remarkable display of God's patience. God doesn't come down and, and destroy the building. He doesn't come down and kill the people. He comes down and he confuses their language and scatters them over the face of the earth. They have a chance to think about what it is that they're trying to do and to realise that God is bigger than what they're trying to build themselves. If the mistake exposed by Noah and the ark was the idea that if we can just start again, everything will be okay. The mistake exposed by the Tower of Babel is that if we could just work together, if we can just pull our resources, we can protect ourselves and we can make our world great and we can do it all without God. In that sense, number one World Trade Center, Mark II, is as foolish a construction as the Tower of Babel. Because its message is that democracy and capitalism and world harmony will triumph and will do it without God. And it can't happen. The problem isn't simply restricted to buildings either. The UN is a kind of symbol of the idea that by working together, we can redeem the world. 
We can restore the world and we can protect ourselves. And we don't need God. All we need is the nations of the world to unite. All we need is a great big parliament. That'll solve the problems of the world, won't it? Now, there's no doubt that the UN has achieved some great things. But there's also no denying that it has been staggeringly incapable in its 50, 60-year history of ending war and bloodshed. It's not that human collaboration is pointless. Clearly people work together every day to make the world better. The point is that when we do it without God, it won't work. We can't fix the world without God and trying to fix the world without God actually ends up breaking it. Well, following the account of Babel, we get another of those long lists of births and deaths, which seems a bit of a strange thing to put here after a story like the, uh, uh, the Tower of Babel. But these gene- genealogies are scattered all through Genesis and they're a reminder that we're still looking for that descendant of Eve that God promised who'd put the world right. Remember God promised that there would be a descendant of Eve who would crush Satan's head. And so here we have another list of people. Will this be the one? And at the end of that long list of people, which spans the period from Noah to the flood, we get Abram. Abram is the man whose name is later changed to become Abraham. And almost out of nowhere, God comes to him and he says, Abram, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's important to see that what God does for Abram is directly related to what the people were trying to do for themselves in the Tower of Babel. So just as the people of Babel had settled down in the plain of Shinar, so we're told that Abram's family had settled down as well in Haran. But God calls Abram to leave all that and to go to the place that God will show him. The people of Babel had tried to build a city and a tower. The word for tower is related to the word great. They'd kind of, almost literally, this is a bit awful, but they tried to make themselves a great. That is, they tried to make themselves great by building But now God promises to make Abram great. The people of Babel had tried to make a name, a reputation, glory and honour for themselves, but here God promises to do that very thing for Abram, to make his name great. The people of Babel had tried to fortify themselves in a great city to protect themselves, but now God promises Abram that whoever blesses him, he will bless, and whoever curses him, he will curse. Everything that the people of Babel tried to build for themselves, God promises to do for Abram. If the contrast between Genesis 11 and 12 then reminds us of anything, it reminds us that what the world needs and what we as human beings need is completely beyond our power to do. What we need, we can't build. And what we can do can't help us. Every time I drive around Launceston, 
you, you know, you can't get the engineer out of a person. But every time I drive around Launceston, I, I drive on the roads and I think to myself, goodness, these roads are badly designed. These, there's three routes between my house and the city and they're all bad. They're all awful. And I think to myself, you know, if I was going to start again, how would, how would you build the roads? Where would you put them? And Trevallon, let's not even go there. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's sheer bad. Driving to Gwyn and Rachel's house is sheer madness. Having lived in Canberra, I know what good design is. <laughs> but actually, it, it is actually quite beautiful there, what they've done in the older suburbs. But uh, that's another story. But the point is this. It's great to think about, you know, how you could design a city better. But in all honesty, good, des- good road design is helpful, but it's not going to change the world, is it? There's a limit to its utility, There's a limit to the utility of the things that we can build and do and piece together. The things that we build are useful, but they can't deal with our fundamental problem. Can can a city make the world a better place? In Sydney, you know, in in all these big cities, they constantly have these these great surveys of how they can, you know, transform the, the inner workings of the city and they put in parks and trees and thoroughfares and all kinds of things and artwork. Melbourne, they love their artwork, don't they? But can a great city make the world a better place? Yeah, sort of. But how can a city deal with sin? How can a tower change the heart of a person? How can a city heal a broken relationship or raise people from the dead? We don't need a city. We need Jesus. And here's the thing. We don't need to build Jesus. He's already there. We just need to receive him. All that we need, God has promised to do for us. All that we need, God has done in Jesus. He's cancelled sin on the cross. He's conquered death in his resurrection from the dead. He's poured out his Holy Spirit on those who trust him. He's he's changing people and transforming people. All that we need, God has done in Jesus. It's not that we need it and we can't get it. But God has promised it to those who receive it in Jesus Christ. Everything that the people of Babel tried to build for themselves in a tower, God promised to Abram and he promises to us as well. The people of Babel tried to make themselves great. They tried to rebuild humanity and the world off their own bat. They tried to rebuild the world without God. But God comes to Abram and promises to do that for him. And last of all, do you know what happens when God promises To do that for Abram, Abram believes God and goes. Abram didn't have to believe God when he made that promise. Abram could have gone, you know what, I'm going to stay with my family here in Haran. We've got a good thing going here. It feels, you know, there's safety and security with the family. I think I'm just going to stay here. No, he doesn't do that. God called him to leave his country, his people, his family, and to go to a place that he didn't know. And Abram believes God. He trusts him. He takes him at his word and he goes. God doesn't even tell him where he's going. He just says, go to the place I'll show you. 
used to drive with my friend in the car uh, in, in, in Geelong, and, uh, and I'd say, where are we going? I, I won't tell you. I'll just tell you, you know, what, what street you need to turn. <laughs> where are we going? It's awful. It's very infuriating for a person who likes to control the situation. But isn't that what we're like? But God calls Abram and he goes. He believes him. He trusts him, even though he doesn't know the future. And in verse 8, we read how Abram finally gets to the land and he pitches his tent. And in contrast to the people of Babel, who were building this great city, this great edifice for themselves, this great piece of architecture. Abram leaves his home and he lives in a tent. And the only thing that he builds in the land that God promises him is not a house, but an altar. Twice. Someone wrote, the only things that he left behind were relics of his worship of God not monuments to his personal wealth. Notice too that God doesn't even promise Abram that he himself will get the land. Abram doesn't leave home with the promise of his best life now. He leaves home with the promise of something in the future, a promise made to his offspring. That one offspring, that one descendant of Eve whose heel Satan will strike, but whose head, but who will crush Satan's head. A promise that somehow, some way, long into the future, Abram himself will be a, a beneficiary of this promise as well. The writer of Hebrews picks up that theme in chapter 11 of Hebrews when he says, By faith when Abram, Abraham, uh, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And again, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country uh, of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they could have gone back. They, had, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You see, we have two kinds of people and two kinds of city. We have Babel-type people, people who try to build cities here and now in a desperate attempt to redeem the world, to redeem themselves, to, to redeem the world in their own power, to make it better. And we have the Abraham people who look for a city to come, a city built by God. It's a great question to ask, I think. To take the time and to, th and, and to say to yourself, which city am I looking for? Which city am I building? Am I a Genesis 11 person? Or am I a Genesis 12 person? Am I building a great city for a, a great name, fortified for self-preservation? 
Or am I looking for that city that God is building, but a city that's far off and that we need to wait for? I have to move house again in, uh, in a couple of months, and I hate moving. I really hate it. Uh, but it's good. It's good for me. Because almost imperceptibly, I find myself longing for the wrong city. And I, and I discovered recently that I'd fooled myself into thinking that I was an alien and a stranger. But when it came time to look for a new place to live, I discovered how deep the roots of my heart were set in this world and in this place. Almost imperceptibly, we begin to build the edifice of self-glory and self-preservation. Home becomes a place of safety rather than God being the place of safety. I've been learning to trust God more and more deeply to trust God as I wander pitching my tent wherever he tells me and looking forward to a city that is built by Jesus. It's not that building a home is a a cardinal sin or that making a, a nice place to live is evil, but as you're doing that, it's good to remind yourself, this isn't home. I'm just passing through. God has already built my home And it's better than this one. This is just a temporary residence. Buildings say things. The Tower of Babel said, we can build it and we can be glorious and we can be safe. The city that Jesus is building says, he is glorious, he is safe and he is the king. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that we don't need to build a new world uh, or a new city uh, or a new tower. Lord, thank you that you are building and have built that in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, each one of us, to look forward with trust and faith to that city. That city which will one day descend from the heavens to the earth. The city whose name is God is there. Lord, forgive us for becoming tied down in this world. Lord, help us to sit loose and to live as Abram lived, believing you as an alien and stranger in a foreign land. Father, we ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.